Well, good morning again, beloved. It's time for us to give our attention to God's word and listen to him speak to us um, this morning from his word. Before we do so, let's prepare our hearts in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we believe that your word is alive. We believe it's active, it's sharp. We believe that it divides and cuts. And we believe that we need your word to do those things in our souls. To divide, to cut, to heal, to bind up, to instruct. And so we pray, Lord, by your spirit, make your word alive to us this morning. And in fact, make us alive to your word so that we would not be dull and hard of hearing, but we would hear with faith. Having heard with faith, we would be changed, O Lord, as we live for you. Speak to us, O Lord. Help us to follow Jesus, we pray, Father. And it's in Jesus' name we, we pray these things. Amen. I'm old enough to remember when the TV show Who Wants to Be a Millionaire got started, when Regis Philbin was the host sitting there kind of cheeky, smugly, with the guests asking questions and the guests trying to make their way up the, the ladder, so to speak, to win that million dollars. The drama building, the intensity building, the need to use a lifeline, the phone a friend, or 50-50, those kinds of things. It's a great show, because who doesn't want to be a millionaire? But the, the challenge of the show, of course, is the, the higher you go up in the questions, the trickier the questions get, the more difficult the questions get. And if you've ever taken a multiple choice test in high school or college or whatever, you know, actually, the multiple choice tests are sometimes the most difficult tests because the answers can sometimes all seem alike, hard to make a distinction between the potential answers. Now, here's the thing about... Who wants to be a millionaire? Regis Philbin, I'm sure, made a lot of money when he was hosting, and so did the other hosts who hosted the show. But the money really wasn't sort of in asking the tricky questions. The money was really in answering correctly. Now, I say that because sometimes I think there are people who, when it comes to Jesus and the truth about Jesus and the truth about eternal life, there are people sometimes who like to try and play stump the Christian, ask a tricky question, ask some question that puts us off balance or things of that sort, as if asking the tricky question is kind of how you win. Well, it's not. We win by getting the right answer. Just like on a high school quiz or a college exam, you only get good marks if you answer the question correctly. That's true with religious claims, too. That's true with spiritual truth, as well. It's not asking the tricky question. It's arriving at the true answer. In our text this morning, what we're going to see are three conversations that Jesus has with three different groups of people. And most of these conversations begin with people coming to Jesus asking tricky questions. Here's the other problem with tricky questions. When we ask tricky questions with the goal of sort of tangling somebody up, we actually miss out on the deep, profound answers that those questions reveal. And so as we look at these dialogues this morning, I pray that if we're people who have questions for Jesus, that we are honest people, not just playing a game of gotcha, but we're people who are actually looking for the answers. And I pray that the answers that Jesus teaches us 
here, these profound spiritual truths are things that we believe and accept as truth because they are, that truth changes our lives. So I want to give us three things that we'll see from this text, three truths that Jesus will reveal to people if only they had ears to hear it and eyes to see it. Number one, you belong to God. You belong to God. Number two, you are meant to live forever. You are meant to live forever. And number three, you are called to know and to show God's love. You're called to know God's love and to show God's love in the world. Now to see this, we're going to look at Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 13 to 34. Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 34. Look there with me. And they said to him, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians, to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you're not swayed by appearances, but truly each teach, excuse me, truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother, a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You 
are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So the first thing we want to see is you and I belong to God. We get that from that first exchange in Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. Just as a reminder, since chapter 10 or so, Jesus has been going in and out of Jerusalem to the temple. He's come there, and he has already predicted in Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 9, and 10, that when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to be betrayed, uh, arrested, tried, beaten, mocked, crucified, and on the third day, he will rise. And just as he has predicted, the, the intensity of opposition has been growing, so that every time he comes into the temple area, there's somebody there with some questions. And that's the case when we come to verse 13. Says there that Pharisees and Herodians have come to Jesus with a question to try and trap him. Now, the first thing to notice is the two groups that come to him the Pharisees and the Herodians. These are strange bedfellows, man. These are not folks who would normally be hanging out. The Pharisees is uh, one of the major sort of religious sects or denominations of Judaism at the time. They are folks who believe in. Um, the Torah and the, the writings of the prophets and the Psalms of David, and they believe in the oral tradition. They are strict legalists. Uh, they believe in keeping the law. And they are folks who are, you, you might call them sort of the resistance to Rome. Rome has occupied Jerusalem. Rome has conquered Israel. And the Pharisees are a group of people who really hate the fact that they're living under Roman occupation. The Herodians are on the other side of the map. So if the, if the Pharisees are the religious separatists of the day, the Herodians are the assimilationists of the day. They are folks who believe in Greek culture, uh, Roman culture. They argue that Jews should stop trying to be distinctly Jewish, the way the Pharisees say, but rather should blend into Roman society, should become a part of Roman society, taking on Roman cultural ways and things of that sort. So they speak Greek rather than Hebrew. And in that sense, these are the cultural and religious assimilationists of Jesus' day. They are at polar ends of the political spectrum, and yet they are working together now to try and trap Jesus in his teaching. They give us the first trick question in verse 14. Notice how they try to gas Jesus up before they ask the question. They call him teacher or rabbi, even though they don't recognize his teaching authority. They say, we, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinions. Well, Jesus does teach the truth, and he doesn't fear man, but they don't really respect that about him. They don't accept his teaching as true. And they go on and they say, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Again, all of that's true, but they don't believe any of it. They don't submit to any of it. They're trying to kind of egg him on. They're trying to gas him up. So maybe you've been around friends sometimes, and you got that one friend that's like, you know, oh, man, if I was you, I would do this, I would do that. You ain't scared. You scared? You ain't scared. And you're trying to get someone to act kind of rashly or foolishly. And this is what they're trying to do. They're trying to egg him on with, with flattery and, and appeal to a sense of boldness so they can ask him this trick question and lay this trap for his feet. They flatter Jesus, and then they ask him the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them, or should we not? 
And that's an explosive political question. It's a political question wrapped in the language of theology. Is it lawful? It reminds me of a lot of um, debates inside the church today. The folks' politics are, are thinly veiled in religious garb. Now, it's an explosive question because basically, if Jesus says we should pay taxes to the Roman authorities, then he's going to anger the Pharisees and anger most of Israel, who, as we said before, resent the fact that Rome has conquered them and, and Rome charges them taxes. If he says that we should um, not pay the tax, of course, then he's going to, he's going to anger Caesar, he's going to anger Rome, um, he's going to anger the assimilationists like the Herodians, and he's going to put himself in danger of arrest and, and execution for insurrection. And so they're trying to hang him on the horns of this dilemma with this question about paying taxes. Notice Jesus' response. He answers them in verses 15 to 17. First, the Lord knows their hypocrisy. He knows the question isn't sincere. He knows that these folks teach one thing and do another. But secondly, the Lord warns them against testing him. God is not to be tested. He's not to be trifled with. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 16 and 17 says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And Jesus has that in mind here. He says the same thing to Satan when Satan tempts him in the wilderness. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. He's reminding them, you're playing a very dangerous game here. But then the Lord gives them an object lesson. They ask for a coin. And they bring him a coin, a denarius. Um, and the ironic thing about that is they're the ones with the coin, not Jesus. And incidentally, the denarius would have been uh, approximately what the tax would have cost in that day, about a day's wages. And so they, they come with a denarius. They're the ones ready to pay taxes, but they're trying to trick Jesus with this question. And Jesus asked him, whose inscription is on this coin? Whose image and inscription is on this coin? They answer, Caesar. This is where Jesus unpacks for them a, a very important spiritual truth. The one in whose image we are made is the one who owns us. And so Jesus says to him in verse 17, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. This is Caesar's money. This is Caesar's currency. His face is on it, much like we do with uh, American currency. We put dead presidents on it. It's a, it's a symbol of that currency belonging to this country. So it was with Caesar. So give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God the things that are God's. Well, who's made in the image and likeness of God? Genesis 1, 26, 27 says, every human being is made in the image and the likeness of God. And so being made in his image, being made in his likeness, and if we're we're Christians, having had his word written on our hearts in the new covenant, we bear his inscription, we belong to him. Caesar gets what is his, but God is to get what is his. A thing belongs to the one in whose image it is made. You, beloved, are made in God's image. You, beloved, belong to God. Jesus is here saying, give yourself to God. He made you. He owns you. Give yourself to him. Now, Jesus' response stuns them. They marvel at him. 
And no wonder, because it's a, it's a brilliant response. It's a response that not only cuts through the hypocrisy, but it's a response that at the same time gives us a little bit of theology of human government and a little bit of theology proper. When he says that render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, he affirms at least three things. Number one, he affirms the legitimacy of human government. As Romans 13, 1 and 2 tells us, human government is by God's design. There is no government that exists that God did not establish. And so government is legitimate. Number two, he affirms the legitimacy of taxation. And so again, in Romans chapter 13, verses 6 and 7, we are commanded, because God establishes government, to pay our taxes, to give um, uh, taxes to whom taxes are due, to give revenue to whom revenue is due, to give honor to whom honor is due. And so government has a legitimate right to tax its citizens. Jesus is affirming that. Now, it's interesting. This, is, this, this double truth really exposes some hypocrisy even in our day, doesn't it? Because the people who are loudest about God ordaining government and we need to submit to it are often the people who are loudest in their opposition to taxes. And so they say, don't protest, submit to government, honor those in authority, but then they grumble and complain when authority uses that authority to tax. Jesus affirms both things. Number three, he's affirming human government and the legitimacy of taxation even when government is unrighteous. The Caesars are not virtuous. They will persecute the church. They maintain Rome's power by conquering other lands. And so our submission to authority and our paying of taxes are not conditioned by the righteousness of the government. We don't get to opt out because we don't think this government leader or that government leader is righteous. No, we are still bound in this very grief theology, which isn't all that we could say about government, but in this little grief passage, we're still bound to the government authorities that God raises up, even if they are unrighteous. But there are two halves to Jesus' comment in verse 17. The second half is, and render to God the things that are God's. And in doing that, Jesus is affirming that actually God has ownership here too, and he has an ownership that's greater than the government's. So three things. He's affirming that there are things that belong solely to God, that government has no right to. Number two, he affirms that things made in God's image, of course, as we've been saying, belong to God and should be given to him. And number three, therefore, he's implying that there are limits to government authority then. The government does not own, for example, our conscience, doesn't own our worship or our bodies. So refer to Romans chapter 13 again. Verse 5 says, Therefore one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Also for the sake of conscience. Now in the context, Paul was saying in Romans 13 that government has two functions, to reward those who do right and to punish those who do wrong. And so for the sake of conscience, we should support such a government. We should um, obey such a government so that our conscience doesn't condemn us, so that it's not always pecking at us because we are disobeying God's good authority through government. But what if government gets it reversed? What if government punishes the righteous and rewards the wicked? Well, in that case, to act with government in that way 
would, would be also to do violence to our conscience. That part of us where God has basically written right and wrong into us. Well, no, in that case, we don't go along with government in things that are that are wicked, things that are unrighteous or untrue. Government gets it backwards. We're not to live a backward life with it. Our conscience belongs to God, not government. God's law is greater than government's law. If the government violates what God requires in his law, then we must become like the Egyptian midwives, disobeying Pharaoh in order to obey God. So we might put verse 17 this way. Pay your taxes, but give yourself to God. May 15th is the new deadline for filing your taxes. If you are a follower of Jesus, then by May 15th, by midnight on May 15th, you need to send your taxes in. Pay what you owe. Give to Caesar what is Caesar. But do not give yourself to this country. Do not be kind, become the kind of nationalist who worships the country and thinks of the country as having some allegiance that, that, that is greater than your allegiance to God. And do not confuse those allegiances. For what we owe as citizens is not the same thing that we owe as worship to God. And so maybe verse 17 is a call to each of us to consecrate ourselves, to set ourselves apart for the worship of God to set ourselves apart as belonging only to God, as holy unto the Lord. Jesus says, we belong to God. Number two, he says, we are meant to live forever. That's what we see in verses 18 to 27. He's barely finished talking with the Pharisees and the Herodians, and another group comes up, the Sadducees. The Sadducees are the sort of second major religious group in ancient Judaism, the second sort of major denomination, if you will, in Judaism. And the Sadducees were really associated with the priestly class. Uh, and so as a consequence, they were actually known to be fairly wealthy uh, and usually people of high rank and high position. And where theology is concerned, that in many ways, they were sort of the opposite of the Pharisees. So the Pharisees believed in divine sovereignty. Well, the Sadducees emphasized human free will alone. The Pharisees believed in angels and demons. The Sadducees rejected the notion of angels and demons. The Pharisees uh, accepted the, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, uh, the, the wisdom literature or the writings, and, and the prophets, as well as the oral tradition of the rabbis. They considered all of that um, scripture and useful for the spiritual life. Well, the, the Sadducees accepted only the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. Here's what um, Mark tells us here in verse 18. One of the things about the Sadducees is that they were the ones who say there is no resurrection. As one writer puts it, they believed that at death the soul perished along with the body and hence there were no future rewards or punishments. But the Sadducees, this life, is all there really was. And so now you understand a little bit of the background as to why they try and trap Jesus with this particular question. They come to him and they, and they sort of say, hey, Moses gave us a law, in verse 19, Moses gave us a law that basically if a man has a brother who dies and leaves his wife without a child, 
that man has a responsibility to take his brother's wife, um, raise children, so that his brother's name is not forgotten, is not lost, and his inheritance is not lost. That's called a Leverite marriage, or uh, the law of the kinsman redeemer. Most famous example of this is probably Ruth and Boaz. Um, when Boaz marries Ruth, he, he basically is enacting this law from Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 to 6. So that's in the Torah. They believe that. They take that. They come to Jesus, and now they build up this hypothetical situation. Imagine a woman who is married. Her husband dies. She has no children. So this man has seven. There's seven siblings. So the second brother marries her, the third brother, and so on, all the way down to seven, and she has no children. Well, in the resurrection, wink, wink, if there is a resurrection, from the Sadducees' perspective, whose wife would she be? So they, they're sort of making an argument from absurdity. They're trying to reduce the idea of the resurrection to an absurdity through this sort of fictional, hypothetical question based on Torah. Now, notice Jesus' response to them. First, Jesus just rebukes them for not knowing the scripture or the power of God. You see that in verse 24? Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. I mean, sometimes people are so wrong, you just got to say, man, that's wrong. That's what Jesus says right here. You're wrong. You know why you're wrong? Because you don't know the Bible and you don't know the power of God. Now, when he responds that way in verse 24 with that, that simple but, but sharp rebuke, I think there's some things we need to infer from this. We need to understand, as Jesus does, that the spiritual answers to spiritual questions are found in the Bible. He has complete confidence in the Bible as the basis for religious and spiritual truth. We should too. And we're meant to understand from this rebuke that rejecting the Bible's teaching or remaining ignorant of the Bible's teaching will always lead to wrong answers about spiritual things. Ignorance never produces truth. So we need to know what the Bible teaches and we need to accept it if we want to come into a fuller understanding of the truth. And, and one more thing to infer, and that's this. Once we admit the existence of an all-powerful God, we got to put human reason into check. Human logic, we, we're not going to logic our way to heaven. We're not going to logic our way to spiritual truths. Once you admit that there's a being who has all power, then we also have to admit that there are limits to our logic and limits to how far our logic can take us. In fact, what that means is we need revelation, not just reason. We need God to tell us the truth, to reveal it to us, not just try to reason our way there. And so we need to come under revelation. And so this rebuke puts the Sadducees and the reader today on alert. The answers are in the Bible and God defies our expectations. Verses 25 to 27 teach us the real truth about marriage and a resurrection. First, we need to know verse 25. There is no marriage in the resurrection. Jesus says, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. The Sadducees seem to assume that heaven was basically just like earth, and that the permanence of relationships on earth, well, that same permanence would exist in relationships in heaven. But Jesus makes it clear that 
that heaven is actually an otherworldly existence. Heaven is not earth turned up. Heaven is entirely different, including with human relationships. Instead, in heaven, we are like angels. And the word is like angels. We don't become angels. So you hear people say, I'm going to get my wings. Well, you're not going to get any wings. You're still going to be human. Um, angels are a different creature altogether. But we are like angels in the sense that we do not marry. Angels don't marry. There's no Mrs. Gabriel floating around heaven somewhere. And in heaven, humans won't marry. We will be, like the angels, solely devoted to God. That's what angels are. They exist to, to be solely and entirely devoted to God. And that's how we will be. It, it will be our highest happiness. In, in fact, in heaven, there's only one marriage. That's the church to Christ the bridegroom. He will be our joy and our dedication. So the Sadducees' little trick question, it might have made sense by human reason and logic, but they didn't understand the power of God with the scriptures. It makes no sense when you put God in the equation and think about God's power. Here's the second thing they didn't understand, that God is a God of the living. That's Jesus' point in verse 26 and 27. He quotes from Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. Uh, our brother Tim Boston, uh, the Bostons read that text for us earlier in the service. Uh, Moses appears before burning bush, and God speaks from the burning bush, and God introduces himself in the words of verse 26, where we read, And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. What Jesus is keying in on is the verb tense. It's present tense. God doesn't introduce himself to Moses by saying, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob. He says, I am their God, which infers that, that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the patriarchs of Israel are still alive, that his relationship with him is still present tense. I am their God. And Jesus says, from the verb tense, this means that they are living and that God is the God of the living, not the dead. It's an inference that implies the reality of the resurrection. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus says very point blank, and again at the end of verse 27, you are quite wrong. You are I'm not sure there are other places in the Bible where Jesus is so point blank about a group of people being wrong. But he is here. He starts in verse 24 by saying, this is why you're wrong. He ends in verse 27 by saying to them, again, you are wrong. And like everything that Jesus does, telling these folks that they are wrong is an act of grace. It's an act of mercy. The question to us is, can we stand to be told that we are wrong about God? Most people don't like to be told that they are wrong in general. But to be told that we are wrong about God, well, that feels really personal, even offensive to a lot of people. 
You see, we have so privatized and so customized our religious claims that we actually think other people can't tell us that we are wrong. Well, if we are offended when people tell us we are wrong, how will we ever find our way to the truth? How will we ever escape the prison of our own minds in order to get the light of knowledge from outside of ourselves? And, and maybe you kind of have beliefs like the Pharisees. Maybe you think that hell doesn't exist and heaven doesn't exist. Maybe you think that there is no resurrection, that God does not raise the dead, that this life is all there is. I wonder if you can hear Jesus' words in verse 24 spoken to you. You see that what he says? Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Again, how will you know the truth if you won't allow even the Lord Jesus to tell you that you're wrong? And if you're wrong about something as big as the resurrection, why would you trust your opinion about anything religiously? Beloved, the resurrection is real. And God is real. And praise God that we are meant to live with him forever. And that, that's what the resurrection accomplishes for those who believe in Christ, for those who trust in him. This life is not all there is. This life is not even the best life, not even close. And the blessings of this life, which really are blessings like marriage, that's not the best blessing. It's not the most permanent blessing. Knowing God is. Being with Jesus is. You and I are meant to know God and live with God forever. Which brings us to our third point. A third conversation in our text. And the point is this. You are called to love. You're called to know God's love and to show God's love. That's what we learn from verses 28 to 34. And our final question this time, notice, it's a scribe, verse 28 tells us, who approaches Jesus. But unlike the other interactions, he comes alone. He doesn't come with a crew of Herodians. He doesn't come with a clique of Pharisees. He comes all by himself. He's been listening to the conversations that have been going on. He's been listening to Jesus' answer. Uh, to the other groups. And notice verse 28 says that he saw that Jesus answered them well. He's been impressed by Jesus's response. And unlike the other groups, he's not playing games here. He asks a direct question. He goes right to the point. Notice the question, which commandment is most important of all? See there in verse 28, which commandment is the most important of all? Now, when he asked this question, he recognizes that in the law, and as a scribe, he would have been a student and a teacher of the law, he recognizes that in the law, there were, at Jesus' day, what some rabbis called lighter and weightier matters of the law. There were some laws that were important, they're God's word, there's God's truth, but, but they were sort of lighter in comparison to some other laws, some other commandments that were regarded as heavy. Jesus uses the same language himself in Matthew 23, 23, when he's rebuking the Pharisees. He says, you tithe all of your spices, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and steadfastness, or love in Luke's version. 
And so he's asking a question with categories that, that Jesus himself would use. What's the weightier? What's the lighter matter of the law? In fact, what is the greatest commandment of all? Which one sort of supersedes all the other commandments and directs all of our attention? The Lord gives two answers. I love this. The man asked for one law, one answer, asked it directly, and Jesus gives it two. You see, direct honesty with God often results in kind of double blessing, double revelation, double knowledge, if you will. The first answer is in verses 29 and 30. It's the Shema. It's a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. From the time uh, that families had little infants, they would recite these lines um, to that infant. So a Jewish child in a Jewish religious home would have grown up hearing all of his days, this, this Shema, this, this hearing, this announcement, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. And they would hear the call to love the Lord thy God with all their heart and all their strength and all their soul. And so Jesus is saying, at the heart of biblical religion, the essence of true religion is the recognition that there is one God and the recognition that we are meant to love this God with all of our being. In fact, in, in, the, in Deuteronomy 6, there are sort of three categories there. Jesus adds a four. He says we're to love this God with all of our hearts or from our hearts. We're to love this God from our soul or our spirit. We're to love this God intellectually with our mind. And we're to love this God with all of our strength, with our will. The highest command of God is that all his creatures love him above all things. Enjoy him above all things. And then Jesus gives a second answer in verse 31. The second answer is like the first, that we're to then now love our neighbor as ourselves. So at the heart of biblical religion is a four-letter word, L-O-V-E, love. Now, Jesus in verse 31 is quoting from Leviticus. Leviticus 19.8 says what Jesus says here, love your neighbor as yourself. So he is quoting in both of these quotes from the Torah, that the Sadducees and the Pharisees and everybody claims to believe in, in religious Israel. And he is pulling these two together, the first rabbi to pull these two together in this way and to say at the heart of biblical religion is a vertical love for God that issues forth in a horizontal love for neighbor. Now those two things are joined together and should not be separated. In fact, we know we love God vertically because we love man horizontally. And we cannot say we love God whom we have not seen, it's First John, right? If we don't love man, neighbor, whom we see every day. Right? So love for brother, love for neighbor becomes the visible evidence of genuine love for God. And genuine love for God is the power to love brother, to love neighbor. Jesus says there is no other commandment greater than these. So Jesus doesn't care how religious we think we are and how great our acts of obedience are, 
or how fervent in public worship we are if we don't love. If we don't love God and if we don't love neighbor. Nothing compares in all of religion to loving God and loving neighbor. These, our Lord says, are the greatest commandments. Can I just say, it seems to me that today, this is the great problem in the church. Holding together these two great commands and giving them their, their, their simultaneous emphasis. We're surrounded on all sides by Christians who only include half of this in their vision of the Christian life. Some talk big about loving God, but they reject the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, steadfastness with their neighbor. Some talk big about loving justice and talk big about neighbor love, but they are busy throwing away their Bibles and turning away from God. What we desperately need right now are Christian disciples and Christian churches who hold these things together the way Jesus does. We desperately need a revival in our love for God. And we desperately need an awakening in our recognition that those made in the image of God are meant to be the objects of our love. We desperately need a religion that, 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 that sort of teaches us to receive God's love and to express God's love. Those things go together and should not ever be broken apart. The glory of Christ and the beauty of the church are being muddied and soiled being defiled, dirty, by our half-hearted practice of religion. We desperately need the church to lay hold to both halves, both commandments with both hands, and to give itself fully to them. Now, when Jesus gives his answer, the scribe, the scribe heartily agrees with him, verses 32 and 33. In fact, the scribe goes further than Jesus goes. He says that love for God and love for man is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. In other words, real love for God and neighbor is more in the sight of God than all the bulls and goats and pigeons and things that are offered to God in religious sacrifice. Put them all together, and they're nothing compared to love. The scribe here seems to be kind of an Old Testament version of the Apostle Paul when he writes in 1 Corinthians 13 that we can give our bodies to be burned, we can prophesy and speak in tongues, but if we do not have love, we are nothing. We are a clanging gong, a loud crashing cymbal. We're noise in the world. And the scribe understands that it's not really about sacrifices and about offerings, not not the blood of bulls and goats. It's not about the temple. God is not after those things. He's after our love. Verse 34, by this time now, is a kind of mutual admiration society. The scribe is impressed with Jesus' answers. Jesus is now impressed with the scribe's answer. And so Jesus says in verse 34, you are not far from the kingdom of God which I think is a sobering comment. On the one hand, it's encouraging. 
He's affirming the scribe's theology. On the other hand, he says, you are not far. He did not say you are in the kingdom of God. But that you are not far. You're close. But beloved, close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. You don't get points for being close to the kingdom. To be close to the kingdom is still to be outside the kingdom. To be not far from the kingdom at the end of the day in, in God's judgment is in fact to be terribly far from the kingdom. Of the way one writer puts it, he says, one draws near to the kingdom of God, not by proper theology, but by drawing near to Jesus. This scribe hasn't yet realized that Jesus is the true temple. He hasn't realized that Jesus is the true sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The scribe hasn't realized that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And no one comes to God except through him. Eternal life is not knowing good theology. According to John 17, 3, eternal life is knowing God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. If we don't know Jesus, even if our theology is perfectly orthodox, we may be not far from the kingdom instead of, in fact, in the kingdom. This is the problem with cultural Christianity. Christians or people who regard themselves as Christians because they've grown up in a Christian society or a Christian home or something of that sort. They are Christians in name only. They deceive themselves. They trust their heritage. They trust their Christian values. Perhaps they trust their Christian activities. But they do not trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Not truly. They may be not far from the kingdom, but they are also not in the kingdom. And, and this is the problem with secular moralists. They may believe in doing good things. They may believe in even neighbor love. They may believe in being good people. But they don't know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And they are not in the kingdom. And this, of course, is the problem with intellectual Christians, modern-day Pharisees and Sadducees who debate how many angels can dance on the, the head of a pen. They may know Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. They may know historical and biblical and systematic and philosophical theology. They may keep up with all the current theological debates. But somehow, in it all, they seem never to meet Jesus, to know Jesus, to live for Jesus, to live like Jesus. They are perhaps not far from the kingdom as far as their theology goes, but they are also not in the kingdom, not by their theology. We're saved by a person, the Son of God, who gave himself as a ransom for us on the cross of Calvary who died and three days later was resurrected and who lives. He is the great I am. He is, is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God of all who believe in him. Beloved, whether or not you are a Christian, you belong to God because you were made in God's image. And every human being was made to live with God forever. It's only our sin that has ruined that plan. 
But God has a better plan. Our redemption. We were made to know his love and to show his love. And we receive his love when we repent of our sins and put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we believe that Jesus is the Son of God who took away the punishment that we deserve by dying for us. And when we believe that he was raised from the grave on the third day and we put our hope in that fact that this Savior will rescue us from God's coming judgment and give us a new life with righteousness, righteousness that comes from him, we are born again and reconciled to God. We know God and we are known by God. And then all that's said of us in this text becomes gloriously true and liberating. You mean, I belong to God. I was made to live forever with God. I now know and show the love of God through faith in Christ. These are true answers that are far better than trick questions. These are answers you can trust and put your hope in. And I pray that you would do that. That you would hope in Jesus. That he would save you from your sins, make you new, and bring you home to God's love. Let's pray together. Father, indeed we pray. Write these truths deeply on our hearts. That we belong to you. That we were meant to live with you. And that we are meant to know and to show your love. Let us hear Jesus from Mark 12 teaching these truths and let these truths ring in our souls mixed with faith until we see Jesus face to face. And we are in the kingdom fully and finally and forever. Do this, we pray, for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name.